Welcome to the Green Majority. Thank you for listening to Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we're out of Toronto in uh, CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of your excellent local community radio stations or on a podcast, wherever you might listen to that. And uh, my name is David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And uh, we're going to talk about climate news and some some marketing opinion. Uh, <laughs> and then we're going to discuss the tremulous internal politics of the Canadian Green Party. And Stefan is going to interview Alex Tavasoli, an engineering expert, about the potential for pulling lithium out of the ocean. Yeah. And using that water as fresh drinkable water after removing the lithium. Exactly. Seems too good to be true. To seems too good to be true, which is what I thought, and we find out if it is or not in the segment. Madness. Okay. Uh but first, uh Canada has just called the Federal liberals have called an election, and so now we're going to have a federal election to uh, re-elect Justin Trudeau. I mean, maybe. Mm. The poll, if the polling is right, that's roughly what we're on pace to be doing. Um, but yeah, it's sort of what we're thinking about uh, this week. So starting with you, Lauren, what are you thinking about? Yeah, yeah. In an already packed episode, we don't have too much time to touch on the election, but we will be talking about it in future weeks, obviously, um, though it's a really short election period this time. I guess it's, it's the same as it always is. It's always a minimum of five weeks, maximum of seven. And this is like right in the middle at six or something like that. But I don't know. I'm having a really hard time getting my head in the election space this time around. I mean, we all knew it was coming. We'd been teased about it for months since like March, basically. But at this point, it just, it feels so cynical to call an election right now, as we are just breaking into that fourth wave. Um, people are still really sick. People are still dying and yeah. And Trudeau's liberals have chosen to call an election right now. Um, nobody's really happy about it. Nobody's happy to have to spend the money. Nobody's happy to have to go to the polls and like all for what? So you can maybe get a couple more seats, maybe secure that 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 um that majority when really um and perhaps it was just because people were worried about an election on the horizon, but like Parliament has functioned very well in the last in the last year or so. Um, obviously, like I said, some of that was because there was the expectation of a of an election happening, so people wanted to play nicely, and there's also the fact that we were in the middle of a of an emergency with COVID, but, um, but parliament's been functioning really well. So the idea that he was able to dissolve it on predicating it on the notion that like, Oh, parliament's not doing well. We need to dissolve parliament. Sorry. As listeners can hear my French bulldog come into the room. Um, it just, it's yeah, it doesn't make me happy at all. Yeah, totally fair. I, it's funny. I, I can say the only good thing I can say about it is that it did not happen this spring, which was the thing that I was very scared about. So I guess I'm thankful it is six months later, but so often these, as you mentioned, so often minority governments are sort of criticized for being unstable or, or sort of tumultuous. And honestly, it doesn't seem like the liberal government has really been blockaded in any way to actually get anything done. It doesn't feel like there hasn't been these constant brinksmanship that you've seen in previous governments sometimes where it's like, Oh, we're going to make, we're going to, is this going to happen? Is it not going to happen every time? And then the liberals come out and say, like, well, minority governments only ever last two, only ever often last two months, or sorry, two years. That's that's how long they last. It's sort of a silly thing to say when you're the one choosing to end it. You know, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Like, it's there's not a really good argument for that. There's not a really good argument for for it from a standpoint of like, oh, we've just gone through this whole thing. We need because like we're not out of the woods yet, obviously, with COVID, and I I'm not struck by what I see in the polling does not strike me to seem to imply that we're really off base into even the direction that the country is heading. Like, I don't expect this to change much beyond, as you said, maybe it lets the liberals govern for, with a majority for four years so they can stop playing nice with the other parties. But that's only a loss to me. Like, it's a loss of actual useful representation and actual useful ideas that we've seen over the past two years. You know, like when we got a minority government two years ago, 
to me, that was the best outcome we could have, I, I was hoping for. That was the closest to real representative democracy we're ever going to get. If, you know, if first past the post hasn't blown your mind yet, notice that Nova Scotia just got elected, I think, on this Tuesday, had a, had a, had a, election where 39% of the vote went to the conservatives, 37% of the vote went to the liberals, and the conservatives won with a majority of seats, a dominating victory with 2% more than the popular vote. We're not in, like, the fact that for two years at a time when we were dealing with a crisis, we actually got the most representative democracy we may ever get in our lifetimes because of the liberals' refusal to give us electoral reform in 2015, I will note, is... A lot. Uh, and I feel honestly quite blessed that the COVID happened during this time because I think there would have been a, I, I can only imagine how much worse it would be. And if the liberals get a majority, we're going to, I I truly actually fear to see the level of which, you know, we might start getting more partisan attacks on, on the government because there isn't this requirement to work together during a crisis. And just, you know, we're a part of two crises now. It's not just COVID. The climate crisis needs the same kind of working together and we're probably not going to see it if we get a majority government. And so, yeah, I, I'm sort of left a bit miffed as well. Well, yeah, because like like you said, the NDP, I know we're running out of time here with this segment, but like the NDP and the bloc really kind of stuck their necks out a few times and helped out the liberals and made sure that progressive policy was passed for Canadians over the last year and a bit. And there's no guarantee that that's going to happen going forward anymore because nobody's going to want to play fair. It wasn't rewarded this time around. Why would it be rewarded in the future? Uh, we will be covering the actual policies of these, com uh, especially the environmental policies of, uh, of these, pol of, these pol of these parties in, in future episodes, uh, likely in the few episodes in September next week, we are sort of taking a bit of a, a break. There'll be an episode with deep interview about oceans you'll get next week. But then as we return back into September, uh, a whole bunch of news about uh, the elections coming up. And then three or four days after the election, there'll be a huge climate strike in case you didn't know. So that'll be a fun uh, way to cap off that election week, which will be an absolute climate strike happening on the 24th of September. All right, so for some news headlines now. July 2021 is officially Earth's hottest month on record. The hottest temperature ever recorded in Europe seems to have occurred in Sicily at almost 49 degrees Celsius. 34 states in the U.S. were recently under a heat advisory. Turkey has recently been hit with deadly flooding in the midst of its wildfire disaster, and fires are also burning on tropical islands in the Pacific. A new fire in California exploded in size this week and devoured parts of the town of Grizzly Flats. The B.C. government has extended its emergency declaration to the end of the month to provide more resources for evacuees. A recent study in Science Advances is showing that wildfires have made the COVID pandemic quantifiably worse. As Joseph Winters puts it for grist, quote, the heavy wildfire smoke that blanketed Washington, Oregon, and California in 2020 significantly exacerbated the pandemic, causing 19,742 additional cases of COVID-19 and 748 additional deaths across the three states. Although previous research has documented the connection between wildfire smoke and COVID-19, this is the first time that scientists have calculated the specific toll from the pandemic that is attributable to last year's wildfires. Insurance company Swiss Re is saying that this year's insurable losses were the second worst ever for the first half of the year. The U.S. government has, for the first time ever, declared a water shortage in the Colorado River Basin, which supplies water and power for over 40 million people. Arizona will have to use 18% less water. The Biden administration, meanwhile, is resuming the leasing of public lands for oil and gas while they appeal a court ruling that their halting of the leasing is not justified. Shell is finally going to pay $111 million dollars to a community in Nigeria that suffered from a devastating oil spill in 2008. Here in Canada, the chief of the Sibignagadi First Nation, Mike Sack, 
was detained by federal fisheries officers this week after he announced that they would finally be starting their treaty-guaranteed right to a fishery on their terms. Our own highest court recognized this right over 20 years ago, and our culture has officially and unofficially been subverting our own law this whole time in order to continue our colonialist bullying and intentional impoverishment of First Nations. And now I'm going to go into a thing that uh, Chris put together for us about um, renting clothing. So in, in rental clothing news, a new study by Finnish researchers has found that renting clothes is the least environmentally friendly way to wear them. The study discovered that the environmental impact of constantly delivering and returning clothes is higher than any other method, including simply throwing the clothes away and buying new ones. Owners of clothing rental businesses dispute the findings, arguing that the researchers overestimate carbon from transportation by assuming that all deliveries take place by car. Tamsin Chislett, CEO and co-founder of rental business On Loan, argues that some rental clothing companies use bicycles and electric vans. On Loan itself sends the clothes by parcel delivery company, uh, DPD, which The Guardian falsely claims to be carbon neutral because on, the, on DPD's uh, own website, they list a number of notable achievements in emissions reductions, like reducing CO2 emissions per parcel by 18.8% since 2013. Uh, the study found that rental could match resale in emissions uh, and concludes that the most sustainable solution is simply to buy less clothing and wear it for longer. And... Uh, here, Chris makes a comment about uh, the green, uh, green finagling of uh, corporations, and he writes that rental services are one key strategy by which companies are attempting to square the circular economy. For instance, impact organizations like the Circular Economy and the Google and BlackRock-funded Ellen MacArthur Foundation offer training and support for businesses looking to become more sustainable by switching to resale and rental models. The idea is that renting extends the use of products, thereby decreasing the need for production. However, the lines blur between sustainability as a goal in itself and the underlying motive of every company, which is profit. Often, circular economy advocates use socially beneficial-sounding buzzwords like sharing economy, to interchangeably mean rental model of business. It's therefore vital that the claims and actions of such businesses are scrutinized, as is likely that without regulation, many companies will just employ clothing rental as a new form of greenwashing, claiming to reduce emissions while continuing to exploit workers in the global south, pollute waterways, and push a consumerist approach to fashion. Rental, the thing about fashion specifically is that it's not super energy resource intensive to create one piece of clothing and therefore reusing one piece of clothing, passing it through different people doesn't necessarily have a huge impact on, on decreasing the amount of, of clothing yet you buy. Um, however, you can imagine a rental system or a, or a rebuy system, say with a phone where instead of getting a new phone, you got what you, what you received was a, a new faster, uh, you know, microchip card that was allowed you to keep the rest of the phone, but all you did was change the phone is a much more energy intensive process. And so that would allow that, you know, that to keep in the in systems. And so I do wonder comparing rental systems, which I will argue, I will go out on a limb and say, I think that more and more businesses should go into these types of sort of more rental type businesses, if only because it requires the company itself to retake, take them back. And hopefully then that's a new input resource that they would then recycle back into their system rather than just throwing it out. Now, a lot of these companies, I know H&M has dove pretty deeply into some of this idea of rental uh, of their garments, and H&M has not, to my knowledge, shifted their fast fashion ways while also doing this. They've taken a whole bunch of clothes back, but I have not heard exactly what they're doing, and never would I really go out and say H&M is the model I think anyone should really be aspiring to. You know, they are the height of fast fashion in my understanding. But there's, I do think it's interesting to sort of examine 
And I think it's, you know, as, as Chris mentioned, important to scrutinize these companies to ensure that what they are providing is what they say they're providing. But at the same time, I what I wouldn't want to see happen is these type of ideas be squashed before you're able to actually see them in a more fr- um, fulsome way. Because ultimately, I think these types of circular things are ne- are necessary and are the only way we're going to get at least some of these more energy intensive things to really work in any way. And again, sure, the answer can always be just buy fewer clothes and wear them longer. And I think that's a, you know, that's a very valid and good answer. But there's also a level of like, if I need a really nice dress for one experience, I, you know, I like, I think it's probably still likely better to rent that dress and then give it back and have someone else wear it later than to buy it once and have it in my closet for a year and then I throw it out. Even if the uh, some of the other things aren't perfect. I think there's still a level of which that does, in my mind, s- support the concept of laying things out. And it might not be working right now, but I don't think that's a reason to throw out the whole model. Yeah, um, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think just sort of coming back to something that that Chris wrote down, um, that, David, that David read out, was, um, was that idea of an industry trying to like square the circular economy and like trying to take this concept of rental or return or borrowing essentially what, what we've done with libraries for, for decades now, or I wonder when the first lending library came about centuries, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, taking that concept that is very like deeply antithetical to, to capitalism and kind of capitalism it capitalifying it um and sort of yeah uh, uh, analyzing and assessing and, and questioning what the intentions were when this when this given company or this given project was was taken on is it actually to earnestly sort of reduce the amount of carbon put into the atmosphere or really to kind of slow the fast fashion industry or is it just another way to make sure that that product gets out there and in, in, in an Instagram photo. So it then convinces somebody else to buy it. I don't know. And, and this isn't me lobbying criticism against, against a given fast fashion company or a, or a given, um, uh, clothes like rental company, but, but yeah, just something that, that I was thinking about based off of what Chris said and, and off of what you had mentioned as well, Stefan. Yeah. And interestingly, first library, apparently 2600 BC, and sorry, confirm like that's like the first like lending library. Oh, like oh, like not book library. Well, well, no, because it's like the idea that like I have a library sitting behind me. Theoretically, any shelf of books could be called a library. But is it the type of library where like I could go and be like, "Hi, my name's Lauren. I'm gonna borrow this book, and then I'll bring it back to you in in a week or two." Right. Good point. I've, back then, they were stone stone tablets, so I'm mm. gonna say they probably were not taken out of the library. So touche. They were not a lending reference library. Only. <laughs> the only reference, exactly. Yeah. So the first reference library, 2600, TBD on the first lending library. Um, I'll do some research, some intrepid journalism that we're known for. Yes, exactly. Find out when the first lending library actually occurred. Um, but yeah, and so the the last thing I'll say, uh, just back to this the one other story that was referenced, uh, the the insurance company saying that's the this year's the Sherbert loss was the second worst ever, is just about the fact that the more insurance insurance companies will not keep accepting losing money in the ways that they have lost money, which means that what we'll see is, and we've already started seeing a decrease in what they will insure. And so that the question of how we deal with that fact as it expands will be a very serious question. You know, um, I can like, I I feel very happy that we live in a society right now that is, you know, that, Canada will pay for your medical care. So I'm not worried about like us losing insurance for our smoke inhaled lungs. Now it won't solve other problems like dental, but that's a different problem. But, and, but I'm honestly concerned about whether or not you might see some say California based health insurance companies start coming out and saying, Hey, we're not going to insure your house for fire. And we're not going to insure you for smoke inhalation because you know, you could certainly see that or the premium premiums get raised because of these types of things. And so the, all the number of ways which insurance complicates this matter and the way it will continue to be complicated, I, I still will leave it at the fact that we have to pay, keep paying attention to it because it will not end well if we let insurance companies sort of dictate what what can be saved and what can't be saved because that's a public discussion and not should not be left up to private companies. Were you able to find where the last first lending library was? 
There was a historian who died in 1066 who reported that this individual financed and established a library open to the public could could like get a book free of charge. So like, yeah, I'm seeing 1066. I'm also seeing a specific library in Italy. The I'm not going to try to pronounce that um, was established in 1447. So like still like a thousand years ago, five or six hundred years ago. Yeah. Well, uh, with that solved. We'll go to our music break and we'll be back talking about the Green Party and its inner turmoils uh, that happened earlier this summer. So now we're going to talk about the Green Party and what's been happening internally with it, of course, also in relation to the Liberals. This has nothing to do with their policies or uh, whether or not anybody should support their platforms. Uh, It's just a story about Canadian politics. So on June 10th, Green Party MP Jenica Atwin left the Green Party to join the Liberals. The Greens only had three MPs, so her departure caused them to lose a third of their seats. Representing Fredericton, she was also the only Green MP outside of British Columbia. The whole thing appeared at first to be a reaction against Green Party leadership for not condemning Israel's ruthless violence against Palestine. When Israel was indiscriminately bombing apartment buildings in Gaza in May, Green Party leader Annamie Paul called for de-escalation, which Atwin thought was inadequate, and said, quote, I stand with Palestine and condemn the unthinkable airstrikes in Gaza, and apartheid. A senior advisor to Paul uh, named Noah Zatzman posted on Facebook a few days later accusing NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, former Green Party leadership candidate Dimitri Lascaris, and unnamed members of the Green Party and Liberals of anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. He wrote, We will work to defeat you and bring in progressive climate champions who are Antifa, pro-LGBT, and pro-Indigenous sovereignty, and Zionists with five exclamation marks. Paul then tried to work things out internally but failed, and Atwin has apparently said contradictory things about why she left, first saying that it wasn't the fault of Green Party leadership, but then saying that it was. It's still not clear why Atwin went to the Liberals instead of the NDP or going independent. Jagmeet Singh has spoken out against Israel's illegal annexation of Palestinian land and has said that we should stop selling weapons to Israel. The NDP also recently passed a resolution calling for a trade freeze with illegal Israeli settlements. Trudeau, on the other hand, vehemently supports Israel's illegal occupation and condemns Palestinian solidarity actions like the BDS movement. And what's more, as Terry Seguin pointed out to Atwin in a CBC radio interview, Trudeau's liberals also decided to buy a pipeline, which you didn't agree with before, and are fighting indigenous compensation claims in court. Atwin replied that the liberals were aware of her positions. Atwin's crossing is not just a loss for the Greens, but a win for the liberals, many of whom see the Green Party's rapid rise in popularity as a serious threat. But it has also made Atwin look silly because she has since revised her stance on Israel. She originally said that there were no two sides to this conflict, only human rights abuses by Israel, and called for an end to Israeli apartheid. After joining the liberals, she said that both Palestinians and Israelis are suffering, and that her words were intended to send love and strength to both sides, acknowledging that no one wins in war. Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau put the Liberal Party line more forcefully, telling the House of Commons, quote, I will simply say that the position of the Liberal government is extremely clear on the question of the apartheid label. We reject it categorically. Human Rights Watch declared back in April that Israel had crossed a line and it would now be proper to call it Israeli apartheid. Going back to the Green Party, 
In a letter to the party's federal council, two party representatives claimed that, quote, since her election as leader, Annamie Paul has acted with an autocratic attitude of hostility, superiority, and rejection, failing to assume her duty to be an active, contributing, respectful, attentive member of federal council. The letter, the letter prompted, prompted an emergency meeting of the federal council in which Paul apparently only narrowly avoided a no-confidence vote. Paul and her supporters in the party have stated that the small group within the party that are trying to oust her are driven by sexism and racism. The federal council adopted two other motions, one asking Paul to repudiate the claims made by her senior advisor Noah Zatzman and that, that he would work to defeat other Green Party MPs, and the second calling on her to explicitly support the Green Party caucus. It was later in uh, MPs Elizabeth May and Paul Manley explicitly blamed Zatzman for Atwin's departure from the party. It was later announced that Noah Zatzman's contract would not be renewed, but Paul did not publicly repudiate Zatzman. It was stated that Paul would face a no-confidence vote on July 20th if she did not comply with the council's stipulations, but on July 19th, the Green Party website posted a brief cryptic note stating that there was no longer going to be a vote of no-confidence and there were no future plans to have one. It quickly came out that Paul had initiated a private arbitration process which resulted in a halting of the vote based on an obscure legal argument. The argument given by the arbitrator was that the federal council did not have the authority to dismiss Paul because they were not her employer. Paul's technical employer is the Green Party of Canada Fund, the incorporated financial apparatus of the party, and therefore the Green Party itself does not have the authority to fire her. The federal council has been thereby forced to suspend the no-confidence vote and are now pursuing legal action which seeks to overturn the arbitration decision. The Toronto Star reported that the Green leader repeatedly refused to discuss the legal battle that erupted this week. She would not say why she launched the private arbitration process and declined to say whether she planned to respond to her party's legal challenge in court. Uh, Paul says that the campaign to unseat her is the work of a small group of party officials who will likely be voted out in the approaching council election. The Toronto Star contacted all 24 council candidates, and of the 10 who responded, one said they, were, they supported Paul, five said they would not say either way, and four suggested they would be willing to vote her out. Well, what, what, the one thing that I, the only thing I have to say is that, to me, the only real way the Green Party finds a way out of this in a way that is productive and pushes the agenda of solving climate change, which is not their only agenda, obviously, but the agenda that we care about on the show, um, I think is to honestly look at the suggestions made by some of the work done by outsider activist groups, specifically 350.org Canada, suggesting that they form a climate alliance with the NDP to actually formulate a strong argument against the Liberals on climate. Because at this point, we don't, we don't have enough time to wait for this party to figure itself out and, and try to come back. We don't have enough time to hope that the NDP will find an, suddenly find an extra 10 to 15% of the vote it would need to, to form a government. What we do have time for is some element of working together to actually put the pressure on the liberals to actually do something adequate on climate change, which we have not seen from them. And together, in some collision, hell, I think it's a hell, even bring in the block if you want from a Quebec stance to actually just be like, look, if you elect us as a coalition, we will actually take climate change to the serious level we actually need. And, you know, there are obviously internal hurdles in every one of the parties that probably do that. But to me, that's the one way we might actually get enough action on the federal level that we need with barring sort of, you know, mass, mass action, which is probably the way we end up going. But like working together in that sort of way to me is the one thing that might allow for true relevance that I think has escaped uh, the, the Greens thus far in their in their push. And I'm not going to say, you know, I'm sure many Greens Party supporters listen to this, and I'm sure that there's there's no question that the Green Party successfully brought the question of climate change maybe more to the fore. But at the same time, if we're talking about like really getting real action, we need these parties to really break free of their of the of the chains of 
uh, party systems, really, to have any hope in really getting action. And so that's the really only thought that I have. But to you, Lauren. I almost have to like sidestep the scandal and everything that's been happening this past summer, because um, I think it's one of those situations in which both sides have been wrong at various points. Um, Zionist comments and um, sort of like anti-Palestine comments made by um, staffers were wrong. A lack of condemnation of those statements was wrong, but it could also potentially be argued that those um, I guess like board members, I guess, uh, that are most condemning of Paul, like, is there an element of racism or sexism at play there? Potentially. It's really hard to say. I don't know these people personally. I honestly have seen very few public statements made. So it's like, it's, it's hard to establish what the prejudices and biases at play here really are. But I do 100% agree with you that I think it's the, the party is certainly not going to be able to bounce back from everything that's happened over the last few months in the next six weeks. That's not going to happen. This election, I think, is going to be pretty devastating for them. Um, like like David said, Jenik is gone. So it's down to Paul and Elizabeth, both of whom are, are slated to win their ridings. Elizabeth will probably never lose that riding until she chooses to step down. And Paul seems to be fairly safe in his as well. They're both they're both in BC, obviously. Um, but Ms. Paul, uh, Annamie, isn't 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 going to win Toronto center. It's solidly strongly liberal. Um, and she's polling, I believe like third, maybe even fourth. Um, so, so yeah, so the party isn't going to recover from this in a conventional sense. And I think you're right. I think that, um, it could be argued that the greens in the last 10, 20 years have done a lot to make sure climate stays on um, sort of the docket in Canadian climate politics. But going forward, it can't just be on the docket. It has to be the number one issue. And I think you're right that in order to make sure that climate is pushed front and center and remains front and center, that we are going to need to see the kind of coalition that, like you said, 350 has been pushing for that. Like, I know this is never going to happen, but how cool would it be if, 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 the, if there was like, not even a green NDP coalition, but if they like, I don't know, kind of became a new little green NDP party where yes, it, where it's, where it's like truly proudly, strongly and vocally eco-socialist in a way that, that the NDP hasn't been. The NDP has some really strong um, actors when it comes to climate, has some actually really solid policy when it comes to climate that we'll dig into in the next few weeks. But um, but there is something to be said for the fact that like Jagmeet has refused to ever say the words Green New Deal. He refuses to sort of carry that mantle and try to take back that title of climate leader from Justin Trudeau and the liberals. And I think the only way that we're going to sort of get um, climate being front and center for our for the closest thing that we have to a socialist party and to make sure that it stays front and center just in politics in Canada in general is if is if we see these two parties cooperate in a more meaningful way. And like, who knows, maybe that's what we'll get if we, if going into this election, it becomes a majority government for the liberals, they can be off in their corner doing their liberal thing, steamrolling over everybody. And then maybe that will somehow incentivize a bit more collaboration and cohesion between the Greens and the NDP, especially with the Greens being in such a fragile position right now. Anyway, yeah. and that's, so some, that's some armchair politic talk for you yeah uh more coming specifically on the climate uh ambitions of each of the four parties and now we'll go to a music break uh and come back with uh, the interview with alex tavasoli about can we pull lithium from ocean water we'll find out we're at a bleak moment now well, we will discover who we really are as persons, as communities, and as a nation and empire, and in any way as a species. A nuclear catastrophe, ecological catastrophe, economic catastrophe, political catastrophe, civic catastrophe, and spiritual catastrophe, all coalescing at the same time. 
And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, you found anywhere podcasts can be found. Links to everything at greenmajority.ca. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I'm here with Alex Tavasoli, friend of the show and engineering expert in resource systems for our new segment, Is This Thing Real? Which basically, to quickly explain comes from the fact that the history of science reporting will often indicate that basically any new scientific study might be the solution to all of our problems. You've probably seen this many times in your life. And often you really want to ask someone who knows what they're talking about, should I be excited about this or should I not? This happens a lot to me. And Alex has been uh, so kind to come in and bring her expertise in these subject matters to help us understand, should we be excited about some of these new technologies that are coming out or should we move on and hope for the next thing to be excited about? Thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Thanks, Stefan. And so for this one, for the first inaugural Is This Thing Real? What we have is a study that came out quite recently. It was built off of a couple of previous studies, but it's all about a new way to get lithium from seawater. And so this is all about pulling lithium out of seawater Because when you pull the salt out of seawater, you get lithium as well. And so this is then separating those two pieces, which would be great because lithium is super needed for obviously batteries and some of the other technologies. But, you know, mining lithium is very detrimental to the environment and human rights issues around mining are rampant, as we've discussed previously on the show. Also, lithium might run out by 2080 if we keep using it for all our land-based reserves. So we have to find some other way. But most interestingly, and thirdly, it also might be a way to reduce the cost of desalinization to get fresh water, which also is going to become increasingly important as our fresh water reserves are more depleted. And so this really sounds like a great and useful and potentially very exciting technology, which in the age of pretending everything's going to save the world, led me to be a little like, I don't know if this is the case. So Alex, first question, is this thing real? I would say that yes, it is real with the caveat that anything can be real in science if you're willing to pay for it. So I think that this technology has a couple good aspects because it can drive down the costs of other potentially connected technologies. For example, as you mentioned, it can desalinate water at the same time as mining lithium and pulling it from the brine. And that has the advantage of also simultaneously driving down the cost of desalination technologies because you get to offset some of that cost with the profits you gain from selling off lithium. And that's important because water is going to be a really important resource going forward, especially if we want to enable the hydrogen economy and use water electrolysis for that. And we really, with the technology we have, have maxed out on the efficiency by which we can desalinate water And so coming up with other ways to pay for it, like doing simultaneous lithium extraction is a a really good idea. And so a thing that I was surprised by in the first place was that the fact that there is lithium even in oceans. That's the first part of the thing that surprised me was the fact that this was even an existing resource. How prevalent is lithium within oceans? Like, is this a big resource? Um, I think that it's a big resource I think that I, it is a resource that matches the land-based resources that we have, but the problem is that it's very dilute. So it only makes up about 0.22% of seawater. And so similarly to the energy we spend to get salt out of seawater, we have to spend even more energy to get lithium out because there's, there's even less of it. Right. That makes sense. And so basically your understanding of this, of this report is that it is possible to do. The question that you have is whether or not it is economically viable in the short term, or is this question whether or not it could be ever economically viable? I think when I say that it will not be economically viable, that's probably in the very short term. I think we're going to see the demand for metals like lithium really skyrocket all of a sudden, and then the economics of what is economical will flip suddenly to a a demand side market. And so they'll need to pull all of those resources out of the water. They'll just have to do it. And we've built previous chemical technologies out of panics in the past. We invented artificial rubber during World War II. So this will probably be something similar. Right. That makes sense. 
And so let's dive in for a second about why it's so important to find alternatives to mining lithium. Obviously, one part of it is just the fact that mining is so detrimental to the environment, but there are other problems too. So can you get into a little bit about why is it so important to find alternatives? I think that we need to find alternatives to mining for both technical and humanitarian reasons. So the technical side of it being that the reliance on metals and the need for metals is going to be absolutely huge in order to enable a lot of the sustainable technologies that we want to roll out in the next 20 or 30 years. But simultaneously, we have to think about how and where we're getting those metals from. So for example, another metal that you need for batteries is cobalt. And the vast majority of the cobalt in the world comes from the Congo which is and is usually not in a very good situation. There are like children mining for it and it's not good. The other opportunity, you know, Cobalt Ontario is named after the original cobalt mine that was there, but, you know, we'll also have to trample over towns that people live in and uh, potentially some protected conservation area to, to access that. And so thinking about where we're going to access these metals in the future is going to be really important. And also simultaneously looking at rolling out technologies that need increasingly fewer metals. So bioprocesses, organic technologies, like we have OLEDs now in our screens and displays. These aren't completely metal free, but they do drastically decrease the reliance on actual like metal ores that we need to mine from the earth. So you said something there that is not related to this at all, but now I'm interested in what are OLEDs and how do they work? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So LEDs, like the LED screens or lights yeah. that we have, OLEDs are just organic LEDs. So like there are TVs now and like if you buy a new cell phone today, the screen is actually made from like an organic molecule rather than like metal electronics. Wow. All right. I learned something new every day. <laughs> and so the process here is my understanding, as we said, mentioned earlier, is that you will pull out the salt and the lithium from the water. So you get the fresh water at that point and then you separate the salt and the lithium again, so then you get the lithium. That's roughly what happens? Sort of, yeah. So there are, there are specialized membranes at each stage that will let either a sodium ion or a lithium ion through. Okay, so you're running it through. Okay, it's running through, and you're actually separating it at the, at the source. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So beyond the alternative mining, the other thing that I think that this, that, that's interesting here is this fact that it is solving multiple problems. Because you know, given the number of problems we face in, this, in the world, it's hard to imagine single solving everything. The conversation that I'm having all over the place is about multi-solving issues. And normally that's about trying to solve social issues along with climate issues, but it also works with solving multiple technology issues to make different things economically viable. Like as I mentioned, desalinization remains uneconomically viable for most of the world, as would this process without that extra process. So can you talk a little bit about the ways that this integrated technology helps the whole system work? Yeah, well, when you integrate several different technologies together, you really bring the barrier for adoption for all of them down at the same time. So if we think of like a large petrochemical refinery, you have about, you sometimes have thousands of chemical products coming off of the same refinery because they've integrated these systems. And that's what over the course of a hundred years drove down the cost of fossil derived um, chemicals and products. So if we're able to, for example, bring down the cost of desalination by co-producing lithium or co-producing a number of chemicals at the same time, for example, maybe even adding a water electrolyzer onto that to produce hydrogen, those all become multiple revenue streams for one operation. And so it, it's a really strategic way of basically just making the barrier of entry for sustainable technologies lower. And so you just mentioned hydrogen. Would this technology theoretically also provide green hydrogen connected to this? That's not what was in this particular article, but in theory, there are people working on that and those types of integrated systems. And then when okay. you make hydrogen, you can also make you know a bunch of chemicals on site as well that are fossil fuel free. Wow. So this, again, feels relatively exciting. And you, you mentioned that sort of there is obviously a current cost prohibitiveness, but you also see that as lithium demand increases, that should decrease. So if 
the random person was interested in this and wondering when this kind of technology might start actually making an impact in the world. And again, you're not an expert in this particular field. You're a more generalized understanding. But how far out would you estimate we probably are from seeing this really do some some impact? I mean, when there is a will, there is a way. And if suddenly there is a huge economic driver to get more lithium, I think you could see these things be rolled out in five to 10 years if they had to be. I mean, Suncor, Suncor has this admittedly sort of off talking point where they say that Canada, you know, rolled out the internet almost everywhere. They say everywhere, but not everywhere in Canada has internet, that we rolled out internet in five to 10 years. And so when it comes to it, we can roll out renewables in five to 10 years, which I mean, is a little flawed because do you want that stuff being planned in a panic? But, you know, I think that if, if they wanted to build it, they could build it. Right. So there's no other technological vertical that would be required. Like we have the ability, it was now just a cost question. Yes. Yeah. It's all, it's all economics at this point. And that is hmm. more of a technology commercialization issue and how we go about doing that in the current investment structures and required partnership models and things like that in order to get these technologies off the ground. So if they are something completely new, there might not always be a customer for that immediately. And so that technology sort of would fall by the wayside. But if push came to shove and Tesla needed lithium, like they would build a plant to pull it from seawater. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, in my mind, a way that I often separate problems are like, is it just a money problem or is it a, we don't know how to do this problem. <laughs> and, yeah. and so the shift slowly towards us, it being a money problem and big, okay, if we want to do this, we'll throw money at it, you know, is as I see as a positive momentum. Yes. Yeah. I mean, on that point, we don't need any new technology to solve the climate issue. We could we we could spend our way out of this, but that's not how our market works. So that's that's interesting. Because okay, so this is not in our conversation, but one of the most frustrating moments of the past six months for me was John Kerry's quote that got quoted everywhere about how we haven't developed 50% of the technology we need to decarbonize. And like that's a huge percentage to pretend that we don't have access to and godly philosophy of what you'd have to say. So how do you see that statement and what do you hear when you hear that? I think that that's a very specific view from probably business leaders who he is hearing from, who from a business leader perspective, if you have a revenue model that you have to adhere to and this weird new technology doesn't fit into it, then to you, that technology to solve your carbon problem hasn't been solved, even though it does technically exist. And I think that one, personally, my biggest concern is electricity capacity over new technology development. So new technologies are being put out every single day, but in order to electrify the industrial capacity in the US, you would need to double the amount of electricity that is that exists on the entire grid. And not only do you have to double it, you also have to go back and retroactively make the existing capacity carbon free as well. So I think, in my opinion, that's a way bigger barrier to rolling out these technologies than the technologies themselves existing. They exist. People just have to want to make them. Right. That makes sense. Again, again, that goes back to that, that problem. Like, the problem is just will and not way at this moment. Yes. <laughs> so last question, and it's a more of open-ended one, which is like from your, your where you're sitting, your sort of understanding, are there any technologies that you're like extra excited about? Are there any things that people are doing right now that you're like, ooh, that's super cool or, people, or more people should know about that thing? Yeah. Are there any of these technologies that you think that more people could know about that are super real? Like if, if we're going from, is this real to like, no, this is really real. People should be paying more attention to it. Where would you stay your people's eyeballs? Hmm. Okay. I'll, I'll do a practical one and a more sci-fi one. So I recently been part of this conversation with um, this man named Eric Bachman in the U S who is trying to get a company off the ground called CO2 rail and his idea is that if we load direct air capture modules 
onto trains, then we would reduce the barrier of entry for them because they would naturally be moving through the air and you could make use of regenerative braking on the trains to, to power them rather than them being these sucks on the electrical grid. It's a really cool idea. And if we end up increasing train capacity to avoid air travel, then we would have even more trains to put this on. And um, he's estimating that you would potentially be able to pull something like eight gigatons of carbon dioxide out of the air per year for like vastly less electricity than um, the current direct air capture technologies use. So that's the, that's the practical one. I mean, I love that's the practical one because that one already <laughs> sounds awesome. So what's the sci-fi one? The sci-fi ones are these class of materials called thermoelectrics, which have been, they're, they're sort of just a, a material at this point. They're not really a product, but thermoelectric materials can reversibly make heat from electricity or electricity from heat sort of without having to turn a turbine or build this huge like power plant or something like that. So those are sort of cool because we might be able to, you know, if we have really hot summers and with climate change, the sun intensity is so much higher, we might be able to heat up these thermoelectric materials and just spontaneously produce electricity from them. And that would be, that would be a really cool thing, but they are made out of expensive metals. So hold on on that one, (laughs) unless we can source, I think it's, tin selenide or something like that from a planet that's not earth (laughs) (laughs) yes the space mining is is when you get sci-fi that makes sense yeah (laughs) giant giant train fans are are much more down to earth although i love trains so any way that we increase trains and solve more things i'm just really into well uh thank you so much i always learn so many things in talking to you Thank you. This has been our first Is This Thing Real with Alex Tavasoli, engineering expert in resource systems. If you have any sci-fi sounding things that are studies in similar technology that you want to add to this great new segment we're doing, Is This Thing Real? Send them our way because we always can find someone. If Alex is not an expert, we can find another person to try to find out, are these things real? Because it's an important question in science journalism that we're here to help you. It's not easy being green.